0: All right, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4 today, Acts chapter 4, and uh, over the next few moments, I'm going to share with you what the Bible says about game-changing generosity. By the way, the generosity we're mentioning in Acts chapter 4 has nothing to do with the building. It has nothing to do with coerced giving, nothing to do with any kind of special program. This was generosity that was unfolding because of an incredible move of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. So stand with me and we're going to read an amazing passage here beginning in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4 and see some principles that are so important. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now I want you to pause for a moment. They were of one heart and soul. What an amazing statement. Think about how few places on planet Earth today Are people in one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as anyone had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Wouldn't you like to have that nickname placed on you? That person is the son of encouragement, man. He brings people up instead of down. Verse 37, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What a text. Father, today speak to us from this text. Speak to our lives, our possessions, our generosity. Speak to us about our love. I ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. The text itself from verse 32 all the way to the end is just one powerful picture of the examples of a few people who were Christ followers who demonstrated generosity. And then almost to to put an exclamation mark on the end of this passage, he highlights a guy named Barnabas, the son of encouragement who sold a large piece of property and gave it to the apostles to distribute. So you have a picture of generosity here. You have a picture of people doing unusual things. And amazing things were just happening because... This new group of people are following Jesus. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They're bold with their witness, and they're encouraging people to come to faith in Christ. And so far, context-wise, 5,000 men have come to faith in Christ. I mean, the gospel has the power to change the world, and it was being demonstrated right then and there. But not only did it change the world, it was changing their lives. These were not people who were generous before the gospel impacted them necessarily. This was not a movement that was taking place before the gospel began to spread. This giving was selfless. It was not coerced. It was not forced, but it was a daily practice. It wasn't even a weekly practice. It wasn't something that just happened when they gathered on their day of worship on Sundays, but it was something happening day by day, relationally and personally, during a time of great stressful persecution. Now, we're in Acts 4. We're at the end of Acts 4. By Acts 8, the church is dispersed. Many are not in Jerusalem anymore by Acts 8 because they've been persecuted. They're turning the world upside down, and the Romans don't like it at all, and many of them are forced out of Jerusalem, so it's a very transitory, shaky time. People have probably lost their job. People have probably already been beaten. The disciples have already been placed in jail at least once and threatened not to talk about the name of Jesus, and so this is a tough time, and the church just comes together, and generosity is being demonstrated. So as I looked at this text, I realized it wasn't just talking about generosity, but it was talking about the mindset of the people that allowed generosity. What allows this kind of generosity, this kind of love, this kind of giving? But let me point out three things the text points out. First of all, they were one family. Verse 32 makes it very plain. Those who believed were of one heart. And so this is the camaraderie of a group of people following Jesus. You know, there's something special about knowing other people who follow Jesus. I don't care where you are in the world. I don't care what country it is or whether you can speak their language or not. When you run into a group of sold out believers, there's just something you have in common with them. You are kin to them. You are fellow believers because you love Jesus, because you're following Jesus. And I always love to run into believers wherever they are in the world. And I love the camaraderie that comes out of that. There also is a, a, a harmony and a unity and a family feel because they all realize we've been rescued from sin and from religion and from everything else to be able to be free together, to be able to be forgiven together. But above and beyond all that, they also needed to back each other because it was a time of persecution. Let me tell you something. The way our culture is moving today, the church needs to know what it means to be family together. Because sometimes your witness and your boldness won't be well-received. And sometimes your belief in what the Scripture says is going to be kind of ridiculed, mocked, and even pushed back again. We need to have each other's backs the way they had each other's backs. Amen. But on top of all that, on top of all that, they were living out the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. Acts two forty-two and following, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was what Jesus taught the disciples. If you take your Bible and turn to John 13, there are two verses that Jesus talked to his disciples about as he was washing their feet before he went to the cross. And in John 13, 34, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this. All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So they're teaching that and they're practicing that. Now, then in John 17, even closer to the time where Jesus went to the cross, he prays what we call the high priestly prayer. And part of that priestly prayer is John 17, 21. And here's what he prays to the Father, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, I have only one word to say about that passage, and that word is, wow, wow wow. The wow comes because Jesus is praying for us, the church, and the church then as well as the church now, and he prays, Lord, let them be one with us just as I am one with you. Do you know how close Jesus was to the Father? Jesus actually said, I and the Father are one, and all things I do, I do to obey or to, to do what the Father has told me to do. What I speak, I speak what the Father has told me to say. Wow. So Jesus' prayer has always been that we would love one another, that we would be one, that we would walk together. And so that's what's happening here. All these other details, but certainly they are seeing themselves as one family. And they take care of each other because they are together and because they literally care for each other. You know, I dream of a church like this and I see... Different instances where it happens, where care is given because needs are there and that care is given as one family member to another. I was reading a historian not long ago about this era. His name is J.B. Polehill, And here's what he said about these words. He said, the Greeks shared a common myth that in primitive times people lived in an ideal state where there was no ownership, but everything was held in common. Plato envisioned this ideal republic as one devoid of all private ownership. For some, Greeks communal ownership was a major part of their dream of a golden age. It never happened, of course, because of the selfishness of human nature. More common than this myth was the Greek ideal of friendship, according to which true friends held everything in common and were of one mind. Aristotle reputed to have defined a friend as one soul dwelling in two bodies. High ideals, high dreams. Such expressions have become commonplace and are found in Roman writers, such as Cicero, as well as the Hellenistic Jews that wrote. Luke's description, this historian said, would have evoked an immediate response from all the Gentile readers. What they esteemed as an ideal became a reality in the young Christian community. So their theory, their utopia was being demonstrated, but only in the body of Christ. Let me say, any idealized way of living life is not going to happen because of the government, not going to happen because of the culture, not going to happen because of school systems and local communities. It'll happen because of the body of Christ. That's what's going on. They're seeing the love. They're seeing the care. They are of one family, That's huge. Listen, we live in a diverse and divisive cultural climate today where everyone wants to have something to say about your life. It's so important for us to stay together as believers in Jesus Christ. Your family, I'm family, your family, we're family. We back each other. We love each other. We look to contribute to the whole and to the health and to the oneness of the body. One family, but also one father. One father. If you read on to verse 32, it says, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. That's kind of an unusual statement. Not one claimed that what he owned was his. In other words, no one said, that's mine. You ever had a preschooler in the house? You ever had a preschooler that had a sibling? Some of the best, first, funniest, fastest words out of their mouth is, that's mine. That's mine. And when the little brother or sister tries to grab a toy, that's mine. And when they take something to school and someone else wants to borrow it, that's mine. Selfishness starts very early on. But the Bible says here something with overriding all that, the gospel of Jesus was so strong that these people saw themselves all as one family under one father, and they didn't say, that's mine. They began to see their possessions differently than they did before. And here's the key truth for us all. The only truth by which we as believers can operate is that that God owns everything. Even if it's in our name here on planet Earth, God owns everything. And that we are simply stewards of what He has given us. We're managers. Now, the reason I know God owns everything is because the Bible tells me that. In Psalm chapter 24, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's. And all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. Man, that's a, that's a key verse for us. And when you come to grips with the fact that God owns everything that's in your possession, that really liberates you to be wiser with everything you have. But not only that, we're simply stewards of it all. Because Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, very early in the Bible, talked to the fact that God gave Adam and Eve everything in the garden. And God blessed them, the Bible says. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and began to talk to them about ruling over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, steward all the things that I gave you. Manage that well. When we grab hold of that, it really changes our lives that you're managing God's resources. You're not your own. You're his manager. You're listening to him. Here's a statement for you. Realizing we are managers of God's resources, Helps us move from holding our money with a closed fist to holding it with an open hand. And that's what generosity really is. This is not in any way a description of socialism, <laughs> it's not a description of anything that the government does. It's a willing kind of mindset that says, if my brother has suffering and need, I certainly need to look to the Father to see what's my part in helping meet that need. It's generosity. It's selflessness. It's realizing that God can use you in this. One family, one father. You know, I began to think about this, ask myself this question, and and I know the answer to it, you do too, and that is, is there anything you wouldn't do for your children if it were a true need? If it were a true need, is there anything you would not do for your child or your children or your family if it were a true need? If they were not taking advantage of you or something else, let's just kind of move that out of the way. A real need. Wouldn't you give everything you had? Wouldn't you give up anything you had? Even your life itself, if that was necessary and if that was important, you would give anything because your family and because you know that you love them. I remember my father meeting needs in my life that I knew he couldn't afford to meet. I remember one day he said something like this. I asked, how can you help me with this? Because he was generous, even though he didn't have a lot. And he, he made the statement. He said, what's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. You know, my eyebrows went up. I never thought of things like that before. And then later on, I had children. And I realized, that's true. It really is true. What's mine is yours. Now, don't tell them I said that, okay? That's for me to say. Do <laughs> They know. They know I'll do anything for them. One family, one father, and that's the reason we do that is because we're all one family. And when it comes to moving outside the immediate biological family, the body of Christ has this one father, God the Father, and God allows us to be family in that kind of way. I came through Oklahoma this last week and had uh, kind of a brunch with a friend of mine, an old friend of mine who was the first chairman of deacons at the first church I pastored. His name is Jerry Brown. 84 years of age. Still stands ramrod straight, an old Marine drill sergeant kind of a guy, still wears kind of a crew cut. And, uh, but man, was he a loving, generous man. And we reminisced over old times. He said, do you remember when your third child was born, when Catherine was born, do you remember that you were at the hospital and you knew you had a pretty good sized bill? You were trying to figure out how I pay that bill, you know, so I can take my daughter home, my family home. And, and uh, he said, remember when uh, we were able to help? And I do remember, I remember so well. I remember Jerry Brown came into the room. He said, I've heard that there's a bill here. And he peeled off a $100 bills until there was $1,000. He gave that to him and he said, now, pay your bill. Get your kid home. I mean, who does that? Unless they're just generous, loving family members. And he was that. And I remember protesting a little bit. He said, don't steal the joy that I'm going to have by helping you. today." He claims that she's kind of his daughter, too, in that sense. But I'm thankful. You see, Jerry just had the same father I did, the heavenly father. Jerry just knew that God would meet his need, but he had enough to help me meet the need I had. And that was that kind of generosity that took place. And yes, I'm to do the same. That example lives with me. That example speaks to me. We remind each other of that all the time. One family, one father, one focus. Verse 33 summarizes what's happening here. Really, the central verse of the text is not so much just generosity, but it's really about how God is working. And here's what it says. It says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. Persecution, back from culture, They just kept preaching the resurrection of Jesus because how can you be quiet when you've seen and heard things that others haven't? How can you be quiet when you saw Jesus rise from the dead? How can you be quiet when you know your sins have been paid for and you've been given the gift of eternal life and others still need to know? How can you be quiet? So they needed the grace and they had joy and they had celebration as God was using them. I was with a guy this last week, and in one of the messages he preached at this event, he talked about visiting a maternity ward. And he said, you know, when you go to a hospital, there's all kinds of emotions that you see. Some rooms, some uh, hallways are grievous. They're difficult because of the illnesses and possibly even death. He said in, in other parts of that hospital, there are all kinds of serious decisions being made. But he said, by and large, when I go to a maternity ward, he said, people are celebrating, they're exciting, they're smiling, they're laughing, they're knocking on the window, they're pointing to their kid, they're having all kinds of fun in that maternity ward. They are joyful. That took me back to all those times when we had children, we had six of them, and when we had those moments, when we celebrated together, and then it, it took me back to how focused we were on raising them in the Lord, how focused we were on their education, and how focused we were on teaching them right things, how focused we were on on college and how focused we were on getting them started in life and giving everything that was needed for that and how generous we were because we were willing to give anything for our kids to be raised successfully. And in a spiritual sense, that's what the church is. New people come to faith in Christ, And we love the fact that they've come to faith in Christ, so we adopt them, and we we put our arms around them, and we encourage them. We're generous to them. We demonstrate the love of God, the family of God, the fact that we all have one father and one focus, and that is to bring new believers to faith in Christ and grow them up in the faith. That's just what drives us to generosity. You know why we can be generous? Because we have one family, each other. Because we have one Father God because we have one focus and that's to reach the world for Christ. That's why. It's the last thing Jesus said. It's the most important thing he left us with. It's to take the gospel to the world. Generosity thrives in that. They exhibited boldness, generosity, commitment. And because they did, the gospel has come to us. (laughs) And because we would demonstrate that. The gospel will go to others. I am so glad when I read the Bible. I read about how the Corinthians were generous to the church at Jerusalem when it was hurting so bad. Just read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's amazing. I am so glad that Philippi was generous. The church at Philippi, generous to Paul when he was in prison and hungry and and cold. Thankful that the Jerusalem church was generous to the widows that were hurting and needed daily servings of food. Thankful, generous that the the book of Acts demonstrates the generosity of the church to send apostles and evangelists out to share the gospel with people everywhere. I'm grateful for that environment. And I would say to us today, we have some big shoulders to stand on and some big shoes to fill that we might be generous in the same way. Seven years ago, we were faced with a dilemma in this church seven years ago with a group of people we weren't reaching. We were not reaching Spanish-speaking peoples who had moved to this area in great numbers. We'd had some starts and stops with our our classes that we had for that and the ministries that we had for that, but we didn't have much of an impact on those people groups that speak Spanish. And in the midst of that time, we had a young couple move here from Miami, Florida. The young man was raised in Mexico, classically trained, Excellent in languages and music and everything else. Called to the ministry, served as a student pastor in Miami, Florida area, Spanish-speaking church. And they felt led of God to come to the DFW area. His name was Humberto Gonzalez. And he visited the first day and shared that vision with a couple of people. And at first, I thought—I heard it secondhand. I thought, "I don't know. It sounds like a guy looking for a job to me." Not sure about that. But I met them a little later. Our staff said, "You've got to meet this couple. You've got to talk to them." So I did. And I was convinced that God had indeed led them here, not just to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but to this exact geographical location. But we had a problem, and that problem is it was mid-year. We didn't have budget money for a guy's salary, and we didn't know him over a long period of time. So there was some risk involved, but there was also a lot of pointers, indicators, that this is something we need to do. I approached a member of this church, and I said, I want you to pray about something. I need two years' salary. For a staff member that we don't have room for on, on staff. We don't have room in our budget for it, but I wonder if you would pray with me about that. He said something interesting. He said, you know, just last weekend, my wife and I were praying about Spanish-speaking ministries and wondering what could we do to help this get going. He said, do you want one check at a time or do you want two checks for those two years? I said, I'll take one check right now if you want to do that. He <laughs> wrote a check. We hired him Gonzalez. Today they celebrate seven years of ministry here. Amen. But are concluding their seven-year anniversary service with a baptism, he told me this. He said, I'm going to have to preach a little shorter than normal because we have seven people to baptize today. And then later on in the week, he texted me and said, it's going to have to be an even shorter message because now we have nine to baptize. They're baptizing nine people this morning. It's amazing. But you know, that doesn't happen without somebody's generosity somewhere. That doesn't happen without somebody saying, hey, we'll embrace them as one family. We all have one father. We have one focus. Let's do it. Let's do it. Generosity is game-changing. Game-changing. And today, as you consider the environment and the actions of the New Testament church, best thing I can say to you is, Set the church back 2,000 years. Let's be that. Let's be that. Let's treat each other as one family. Have each other's back. Love each other the way Jesus talked about loving each other. Have one Father. And understand you have one Father that meets all of our needs, no matter who it comes through. It's all from Him. Have one focus. Make sure that nothing keeps you from being focused on the clear crystal clear mission that Jesus gives us, and that is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, starting in our backyard, starting in our neighborhood. Don't let anything hold you back. And when you begin to practice that, generosity becomes just a byproduct of those things. That's what he's called us to, through the power of Jesus. Would you stand with me? Would you stand? Today I'm going to end the service with just simply a prayer. And I'll have our counselors come forward, and at the end of the service, at the end of the prayer, you'll be able to come talk to them. And some of you may need to talk about generosity. Some of you may need to come and talk to them about the different things that this message has stirred up in you. So I'm going to ask the counselors to come right now, and they'll face that way. But we'll not have the music portion, because I've taken a lot of time today to talk about the various things, but we will have this opportunity for you to come and talk. I'm going to the guest reception center, and I'd love to visit with you there join me in praying that we might live out what the New Testament church embodied. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you so much that you have given us a picture, an amazing picture of a church that laid the foundation for us today. And Lord, I would ask you that you let us learn from them and let us walk in their footsteps. Lord Jesus, we ask that you allow us to see each other as one family no matter what our backgrounds, how long we've been following Jesus, or how short of a time, whatever our color, whatever our language, we're all one family. And help us to see you as one Father and help us to hold to the one focus. And Lord, in that environment, let us live out the life of generosity and love and gospel-centeredness. Father, thank you for calling us to this. In Jesus' name, amen.